Hello and welcome to this week's European Conversations podcast, brought to you jointly by the European Movement in Scotland and the Scottish Centre on European Relations. I'm Kirsty Hughes and today I'm in conversation with Michael Mann. Michael is the EU's Special Envoy for Arctic Matters. He's the EU's former ambassador to Iceland and was also formerly Head of Strategic Communications at the European External Action Service. So, Michael, thank you very much for joining me in this podcast today. And you're the special envoy for the Arctic. That, that sounds very important and grand. Can you tell me what does that role actually involve? Yeah, I think it's a threefold thing, really, to be honest. First of all, I, I work on the EU's policy to the Arctic. We have a policy document that dates back five years on, on what the EU does in the Arctic. And we've now been tasked to update that. So later this year, probably in October, we'll have a new EU Arctic policy on the table. Uh, and the work has kicked off in earnest on that now. Uh, obviously, these things take a lot of time because we've got a lot of input coming in. So that's that's point one. I, I'm a policy wonk, I guess. But I'm also, uh, I do a lot of um, outreach activities. So I do a lot of uh, webinars and conferences and so forth to sort of promote what the EU does in the Arctic. Because uh, as with many things that the EU does, I think it does rather a lot, but nobody really knows about it. And we're, we're very bad at sort of publicizing ourselves. So my job is to to do that to an extent and, and frankly COVID is, is a terrible thing and it's also meant that I can't travel uh, to the Arctic at the moment obviously but uh, but it does mean that you can do a lot more public events because you just have to fire up your computer and uh, talk to people and then thirdly uh, in a way I, I work on internal visibility for our policy because it's fair to say that the, because the, the Arctic isn't sort of written in our in our rule book as such it's not in our founding treaties it doesn't say the EU will do the following things in the Arctic so doesn't hasn't always been taken account of in gen, other you know in the making of other policies. So I try and publicise it a bit in the External Action Service, which is our sort of foreign policy service in the European Commission. Uh, I brief the member states and I talk to parliamentarians. So I do a lot of internal visibility work as well. So that's a, a lot. And would would you say you see it? The EU sees its policies towards the Arctic more as foreign policy then from what you say rather than as part of the EU's neighborhood policy because I mean you, you have got Denmark and Sweden are Arctic states in, in geographically aren't they? It's a mixture actually and that's an interesting point because the, the, the policy document when we publish it it will be a policy document by the European Commission and by the high representative for foreign policy so so it, it is a hybrid of both so I mean there's a lot of uh, commission departments that uh, have a lot of activities in the Arctic where big scientists in the Arctic, we have uh, our, our European research programme Horizon has spent 200 million euros on Arctic research over the last seven years and it's going to get bigger in the future. Obviously we do fisheries policy, we do environmental policy. For, for example, you mentioned that um, you know Sweden, Finland and the Kingdom of Denmark are Arctic states. Uh, so all the environmental legislation that the European Union adopts is automatically in place in the Arctic regions as well. But not only that, but Norway and Iceland are also connected to the EU through the uh, Economic Area Agreement. And um, they also have to apply our environmental legislation. So we're, we're, we are actually rule makers in the Arctic, uh, lawmakers. Uh, so, uh, you know, I could go on. We have, we have amazing satellites that do amazing things in the Arctic. We, we, we do transport policy in the Arctic. We have lots of 
uh, regional funding that pays for businesses that uh, that work in the Arctic, entrepreneurs and so forth. There's there's a lot of programs that encourage uh, cooperation between Arctic regions. And in fact, until now, Scotland has actually taken part in some of these regional programs because it is kind of the, the closest place to the Arctic. So there, there have been some Scottish recipients of EU regional funding for, for Arctic activities. So that's the one side. But on the other side, it is also foreign policy. Obviously, the Arctic is the sovereign territory of eight countries, including Russia, uh, the US and Canada. So we also have uh, sort of foreign policy interests in that. And that's why the high representative, our, our chief foreign policy person, is also involved in, in this um, policy document. So, you know, we, we've seen uh, a great rush for resources in the Arctic. We've seen China declaring itself a near Arctic state, wanting its uh, polar Silk Road to be part of its Belt and Road initiative. Uh, Russia is building up its military resources in the Arctic that had fallen into disrepair during the uh, since the Cold War. Obviously, America, with Biden now in charge, is much more on the side of you know climate action and so forth. And Canada is a, is a very close partner to ours as well. So you know we we work on domestic policy and we work on foreign policy in the Arctic. And it's you know the the geopolitical interest in the Arctic is massive at the moment, partly because of the the rush for resources and partly because the ice is melting and it's opening up. And one of the jobs that I have to do is to try and find what the European Union's role in foreign policy in the Arctic can be, because obviously we're constrained by the powers that we have. We're, we're, you know, we have full powers over, for example, fisheries management in the Arctic, but of course we don't have any responsibility for hard security. So it's a question of finding the right balance, I guess. It's a very difficult and it's also a, a really vital challenge, isn't it, given, given climate change and the urgency of, of tackling that, the COP26 summit this year and and yet you couldn't really say that global politics geopolitics as you as you said are, are in a great state at the moment so if you're at a moment where you need to be having great communication europe america russia china this wouldn't be how you'd want it to be but this is this is how it is so what, what are the really the, the challenges in that? Because the EU is trying to relate to China, for instance, in lots of different ways, the sort of trade and investment side of it, the human rights side of it, the climate side, the Arctic side. It, it must be very hard to make progress in, in these crucial Arctic issues. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned climate change and, and Glasgow coming up later this year. I mean, I think as far as we're concerned, the Arctic is the sort of example par excellence of why we need our European Green Deal. You, you look at the Arctic, for every two degrees the temperature rises in Edinburgh, it rises four or five degrees in the Arctic. So it's really the, and, and I think what people need to realize is that it's a bit of a, an old cliche, but what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. What happens that actually matters to everybody. Previously, people kind of left it to the, the Arctic states to handle the problems, but there, there is a realization that you know, we have to work together, particularly on climate change, because that, that is where it's happening the most. And, you know, the, the, the geopolitical interest in the Arctic is there anyway, but it's, it's heightened by the fact that the place is opening up because there's simply because there's less ice, there's easier access to, to raw materials and there's easier transport links. And, you know, you mentioned China as well. China has, as I said earlier, declared itself a near Arctic state. And it's, it's, you know, taking a great interest in the Arctic. It looks in a rather softly, softly way at the moment, but you, you should not, we should not be naive. They are very, very interested. 
Russia is really um, you know, saber rattling to a certain extent. But, but the big question everyone in the Arctic world is asking is, are the you know, alleged risks of a security problem in the Arctic actually anything to do with Arctic specific issues? Or is it just a sort of reflection of global rivalries between the great powers? Because it, it's also true to say that although, you know, everything is far from rosy, the what we call Arctic exceptionalism has actually been the rule uh, until now. And what that means is that basically the Arctic is still an area of peace. It is still an area of, of international cooperation where international law applies. And, and you know, the eight Arctic states are together in the Arctic Council, which is the circumpolar body that looks after the Arctic. And there the level of cooperation is actually extremely good. So we're hopeful that the Arctic can remain a little bit exceptional uh, in these difficult times. And with Russia, obviously, our, our, the European Union's relations with Russia are very, very difficult at the moment. But we still, on a sort of day-by-day -day practical level, still can work with Russia in the Arctic on projects that are of benefit to us. For example, cleaning up Soviet legacy nuclear pollution in, in the sea or black carbon, which is all the soot pollution that comes out of factories and cars and boats. Uh, because it's in our interest to do so, and we can actually still work with Russia. So there is there is a little bit of hope, I guess. You're drawing up this new strategy, as you say, that, that will come out this autumn. But at the moment, what would you say are, are the EU's top three goals for its Arctic policy? I'm glad you asked top three, because we do sort of, we work in three headlines, I guess. The first is climate action and environmental protection, because, you know, the, as I said before, the the climate issues in, in the Arctic are even more extreme than everywhere else. And that is having knock-on effects on biodiversity, for example. So you know, climate change is, is number one. Um, what we call sustainable development is probably a much overused term, but what it basically means is that um, we, sh we shouldn't think of the Arctic as a, as a nice sort of public park with polar bears wandering around. It is actually a living area where up to 5 million people live, of whom about 10% are indigenous peoples. These people have the right to have economic prospects and some of their economic prospects are being undermined by climate change. So therefore, we try and provide programs, financing, encouragement uh, and, and infrastructure to help these people have a long term future, economically speaking. And then thirdly, international cooperation. The, the European Union is the great champion of multilateralism. Unfortunately, we now have friends in Washington who also believe in that uh, these days. Um, so we, we try and make sure that everything is done through negotiation and, and, and transparency and working with, working with our partners. Beyond that, I think the two things that we always stress in the Arctic is that the crucial role of science and research. We're very good on international science cooperation and that there is a lot of work that still needs to be done on understanding what's happening in the Arctic. And then finally, um, it's very important that we don't just play lip service to the needs of the indigenous peoples, but we actually you know, take notice of it, because these people have lived there for millennia and they have knowledge that we simply don't have. It's a huge task, isn't it? And especially the, to achieve some of these aims or all of them with, with the challenges in, in international cooperation. And, and I imagine, apart from the broad difficulty of that, trying to control or inhibit the resource rush must be one of the most difficult. How do you think that most effectively happens is is that sort of top level diplomacy is it by an agreement within the actual arctic council what are the routes to try and get actual concrete commitments on that when i can imagine 
Russia, China, or even America, maybe even under Biden, reluctant to, to perhaps make many of those commitments? Well, um, Russia is certainly investing massively in hydrocarbons. Um, they, I mean, they are they have huge infrastructure projects, and they're shipping uh, their hydrocarbons, the liquefied natural gas, for example, out via the Northern Sea Route, which is the, the Arctic route past the Russian coast, and they want to encourage others to do the same. And I think really the only takers for that so far are China. For European shippers, for example, it still doesn't make economic sense to go that route. So that is gonna be less of an expansion, I think, than some people believe. I mean, the, the European Union does can't just say stop drilling for oil. We don't have the power to do that. And it's not our sovereign territory. So obviously the, the Arctic countries have the decision-making power over most of what happens in their sovereign territory. But of course, there is international regulation, um, which applies to a greater or lesser extent. I think finally, even, even Russia and China are waking up to the dangers of uh, climate change. There was a, the, the Russian deputy minister who was in charge of Arctic affairs, the previous one, said quite openly in a speech that um, the potential cost of the thaw of permafrost in terms of damage to infrastructure and so forth in the Arctic in the Russian Arctic could be as high as 100 billion euros. I mean, they, they are starting to take these things a bit more seriously because they, so I think number one priority for Russia is, is exploiting the resources because it is 20% of their economy that comes out of the Arctic regions. But I think they're waking up to the fact that this has to be carefully managed. Now, you know, dealing with, with climate change is really, we're hoping that, that our, in, give, with our lead, in terms of setting a carbon neutrality target for 2050. And we've just yesterday, in fact, adopted uh, this, um, this climate law for the European Union, which sets our, our targets in stone. Um, we're hoping that that can sort of encourage others to do the same. And that is what seems to be happening. The Americans are also on a 2050 target. The Chinese are talking about 2060. So it's very encouraging. And of course, let's see whether the you know, the parties to the discussions at COP26 in Glasgow are prepared to put their money where their mouth is later this year. Hopefully they will. But again, I mean, the, the exploitation of resources is, is a mixed picture because, for example, we're talking now about the green transition, trying to transition away from carbon-based energy to green energy. And what do you need for that? You need certain minerals um, like you know, nickel for batteries or whatever it may be, rare earth minerals. Um, and they are generally, I mean, let's face it, China controls the supply of most of those minerals for the whole world. So we're looking at diversification. We're looking at becoming a little bit more autonomous on that. So we are going to try and encourage people to uh, mine some of those resources within the European area. And some of that is in the Arctic. Um, so, but again, so it's, it's getting a balance between preservation and precaution on the environmental side, but also um, to, to sort of use the resources for the benefit of the people who live there and also for the benefit of our green transition. So we're not saying that big corporations should go in there, take everything out and take all the profits out. We think that it should be shared with the populations on the ground. Now, we can't do that alone, but with the help of our Arctic member countries and hopefully a growing consensus in the world that we have to look after the world, that will hopefully be possible. So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a mixture of sort of regulation, international negotiation, best practice, and business sense as well. It, it makes sense for people to invest in these things, but we have to do it in a, in a green and environmentally friendly way. And you've seen this, of course, also when you were ambassador, EU ambassador in Iceland. And how, how does it look from that perspective of a small 
Arctic country, one that's chosen to stay outside the EU, though it's in the single market, the European economic area. I mean, did you see Iceland very much just going its own own way on its foreign policy, its Arctic relations, or despite being outside the EU, has, has it tried to coordinate a lot with the EU? Well, the, the Icelandic relationship with the EU is a curious one, actually, because as you say, they're in the single market and they're very close to the European Union uh, in terms of, of, of sort of values and, and in terms of geography as well. Um, but they, 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 they sort of do a balancing act. So they're, they're members of the single market, but there is still a large swell of opinion in Iceland not to take the final step to joining the European Union, mainly, I think, for uh, reasons of, of history, perhaps. They've been a member of a bit of the union with Denmark before, and I think some people would rather like... I mean, their biggest party is called the Independence Party, and I think that tells a story. But also, um, they're a bit worried about the, putting their fisheries and their farmers under the control of the European Union. I, as a European Union civil servant, would say they have nothing to worry about, but that's their prerogative, obviously. But they also have their members of NATO, even though they don't have an army. They've always had good relations with Soviet Union and Russia in terms of trade. And they've also done a free trade agreement with China. So they, they balance the interests. But, but in general, they, they are very close to the European Union, despite their suspicion about joining. Uh, and they do support our foreign policy uh, initiatives, almost without exception. I mean, let's take the, the case of the Russia sanctions. When we imposed sanctions on Russia after the uh, annexation of Crimea, uh, Iceland joined our sanctions, and as a result of that, China stopped importing fish from Iceland. So they have, you know, they have taken brave and principled foreign policy positions. So despite all their, you know, some of their politicians being rather, I mean, it's it's quite useful for politicians sometimes to criticise the European Union. We're a good, we're a good sort of whipping boy sometimes, unfortunately, and, and that also applies in Iceland. But they are very close to us, and they're very good partners. Scotland, we've got an election at the moment, as you know, and, and there's always election or not, there's, there's debate going on about independence or not. But even in its existing policies, the, the Scottish government has been keen to look north. To, it's got its own Arctic strategy. Even now we've left the European Union. It's exploring relations, I think, with the, with the Nordic Council. Do you think that's, I mean, is it feasible for a, a sub-state of a third country outside the EU to aspire to build relations with organisations like the Arctic Council, the Nordic Council? I mean, are, are there other examples of that? Well, the, the, the UK is a sort of curious, you know, curious example, really, because I can't think of that many countries that are, that are similar to it in terms of the sort of four nations, etc. But... Um, I don't think there's any experience of it. Uh, we don't find that uh, Wallonia in Belgium is a member of the Nordic Council and, and Flanders isn't. But I mean, Scotland is further north. And you know, I think the Arctic states would, would welcome and the Nordic states would welcome cooperation with, with Scotland. I don't know to what extent it's possible for that to be sort of written in stone in terms of treaty signing or whatever. I mean, but, but there, is a, there is already a very good cooperation between Scotland and, and the, the Nordic neighbours, if you like. I mean, um, the, the first minister was at the very biggest Arctic event on the global calendar in Reykjavik just a couple of years ago, making that, making that, that point. And also Scotland has been, you know, via its membership of the European Union, uh, has been part of 
regional aid programs in the Arctic. So they, you know, we, we, we provide money for sort of cooperation between neighboring countries and Scotland and Northern Ireland also made use of some of these funds. Now, obviously with Brexit, that's not gonna be the case anymore, but you know, I think people are looking for creative ways to continue the good cooperation that there is because they do have a lot of things in common. Mm. And we'll, we'll see what the result of this election is in a couple of weeks and we'll see what happens in Scottish politics after that. But if Scotland did become a, a, in a legal and constitutionally valid way independent, it, it would have the option to apply to join either the EEA and be Iceland or the EU and be Denmark or Sweden, Finland, as it, as it were. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm a good loyal public servant. I'm not allowed to uh, go into hypotheticals, obviously. <laughs> Um, but I'll go into a hypothetical anyway. I mean, yes, I mean, the way the way it works is that, you know, countries, if they have what we call the European vocation, if they are European countries, they can apply to join the European Union or they can apply to join the EEA. And what, what actually happens in, in the case of the European Union is that the European Commission, the kind of civil service of the European Union says, uh, does an assessment and says, yeah, these, these people... Are, have a European vocation and if they want to join we could start negotiations and that has to be then agreed by the, the 27 governments of the EU and then a, a process of long negotiation begins but you know in the case of a country like Scotland it wouldn't be potentially it wouldn't be as long because they already have the body of EU law so there wouldn't be that much uh, legal adjustment that has to be and some countries that join have just come out of communism that isn't the case in the United Kingdom so that you know anything's possible um and, you know, it, 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 you know, at the end of the day, it's up to the country that wants to join. And, and if the European Union countries agree and they can come to a deal, then, then a country can join. Obviously, you know, it's a decision for any country whether they want to be in the EU for, you know, 100% or whether they want to just be in the single market. Iceland apparently is very happy with its model. Um, but as an EU person, I think joining the EU is a tremendous idea, obviously. And just to fit in a last question there, I mean, and bringing it back to the Arctic, some people say small countries don't have much influence within the EU, but I imagine that Sweden, Denmark, Finland all have quite a say over EU Arctic strategy. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, they, they have their own individual national policies on the Arctic and, you know, they are supportive of our policy in the Arctic. And what we try and do is just to sort of add value in the bits where they don't do it necessarily on the national basis. We don't try and replicate their policies. We don't try and, you know, go against their policies. We try and add European value so we can provide funding for infrastructure or, or for business people. Um, and, and I think that we, we add something to their policies. I mean, they, they are, I mean, for example, Finland held the chairmanship of the EU uh, in 2019, and it was them who pushed very hard as the president of the EU Council to, um, to get us to update our Arctic policy. So they do have a big sway over us. And we, we keep in close touch with, I keep in close touch with my colleagues from Denmark, Sweden and Finland. They are, you know, wise advisors to us and they, and they steer us in the direction that they want to steer us. So we are autonomous, obviously, but we obviously need their, their help and advice. And, you know, we don't want to go against them either. It's great. Michael, man, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thanks, and there we Thanks for asking. I enjoyed it very much. It's good to chat. Thank you. That concludes today's European Conversations podcast. I'm Kirsty Hughes and I was in conversation with Michael Mann.